That's hashtag good content. Ben, do you want to introduce us and everything as soon as you open that beer of yours? Mm. We'll have to make sure that Actually, we include some like of the sound Finally we're recording. Nice. What is like 40 minutes later? Yeah. One hour and seven minutes. Actually, one hour and seven minutes later. Okay. Hello and welcome to Tech Tea. My name is Ben and I'm joined, as usual, by James. Hello, James. Hello. How are you going? I'm good. We've got Hugh on the line as well. Hello. How are you going? Oh, yeah, not too bad. Have you got tea? I do have tea. Oh. I, I have a beer, so we are, we are actually... This is tech beer for me. This is tech right. tea, though. <laughs> Melbourne, Melbourne is always tea. Sydney okay, Sydney, Sydney is beer, apparently. If you're listening, which I presume you are... <laughs> uh, we, uh, you might have noticed, uh, we are not in the same room. Uh, we have, I'm up in Sydney uh, with James. We're down in the bunker. We are in the bunker, of, the startup bunker <laughs> of Sydney Uni. Yes, uh, and this is where startups get made or born. Born. This is where they, the seed is, where the is planted happens. in the bunker and then it sprouts out the top. And <laughs> <laughs> that is some good imagery. We're <laughs> really getting into the analogies early. <laughs> but we also have a special guest. We thought we would try something new. We have Daniel. Hello, Daniel. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Um, just to kind of give a back, bit of background, uh, you're an entrepreneur. How would you describe yourself? Um, I would describe myself as a developer primarily. Mm -hmm. That's basically what I'm doing most days now. Also a student at Sydney Uni. I've never really thought too much of the word entrepreneur, so... You might call me that, but I, I just think of myself as someone who enjoys... You build things. Yeah, building and making stuff, so... Cool. We're going to talk about three things today. We are going to talk about Apple's new iPhone, which just launched. Rise of Health Platform. We're going to talk about Rise of Health Platform. And we've got another special guest for that. Uh, we do have a special guest. We're going to have Giselle uh, a little bit later. Hello. Uh, Giselle's kind of listening Oh, Giselle's in. right here. Okay, cool. Okay. Hi, everybody. We'll have a chat to you a little bit later. And This is the great thing about being in a startup bunker. You just pull in all the startups. Yes. And then lastly, we're going to talk about student entrepreneurs. And there's been a bit of uh, uni bashing of late within the startup sector and seems to be led by one particular individual. Let's start first on the iPhone and iPhone 7. It uh, has been unveiled. It uh, has been unveiled. What's are we going to buy it? Are we going to buy it? Yes, I am. I'm going to buy it. You were trying I'm, to buy it just before the show and you spent just... bloody half hour yeah, putting well, in your details. Well, and then what happened? Well, Why? No, no, no. I, I decided I decided I'm not going to buy it right now. I am going to buy it. I'm going to get the bat back. I'm the 7 plus with the with the with the dual cameras which i find really really interesting right because because as someone pointed out before on twitter uh when they did the iphone uh, uh touch uh fingerprint um uh it took them a year before they released apple pay right and the touch fingerprint primarily you could argue was for apple pay um and uh with the dual camera well, we know what that's samsung for. had already, already released the same feature Samsung already reaches and and it's exactly the same right now, right? Samsung already has Gear VR, um, and the dual camera is absolutely perfect for for VR applications, and that's what we've got right now. So they've released the camera version, but the VR headset's going to come uh, next week, which I which I think is pretty cool. What what did you think was really interesting here? I mean, I th I actually thought that the most interesting part, not to like rabbit on like every other bloody like journalist that's currently writing anything at the moment, the removal of the headphone socket I think is very interesting by way of what it means for the startups that rely on it. So you think about some of the startups, like Square is probably a really good example in the US. Yeah. Yes. The Square credit card reader and uh, the PayPal one, I think, as well, although not the one that they have in Australia. But the Square pay, uh, credit card reader relies on using that headphone socket. And that means that Apple will never have actually received royalty 
from the actual sale of the hardware. Whereas, obviously, if anything's connected to the, the Lightning port, then they manage to take a $1 cut on every piece of hardware sold. So I think there's also a very interesting play about the headphone port, and I'm just probably not the primary play, but there's a very interesting question the headphone port about whether it is really about also having the secondary function of locking out some of these other hardware startups. And what I, would that mean if you were a hardware startup and building on that platform? I think that's. In, I think. I think you're right. I think that is kind of interesting, and it's kind of like with med tech devices when they get really aggressive, right? And they sort of don't let you access into their ports or whatever. But um, but I, they use the word courageous uh, to get rid courageous of the port. Do, do you think courageous is the right word? Oh, no, it's a terrible word. It's it's just an arbitrary. That's <laughs> a terrible word. <laughs> it's an arbitrary what? marketing word. Let's be honest. Uh, I mean. Oh. But I think it's interesting. I mean, Apple were they okay? They're known for getting rid of the the floppy disk, right? Then the CD, uh, and now the headphone port. Have I missed one in there? I but I mean, do you okay? Do you guys think it's valid to get rid of the headphone port right now? Daniel, I think in terms of saving on size and putting in other stuff in the hardware, it makes sense. And I guess it is quite a okay, but but, but as a piece of tech. Okay, but but as can, a consumer, as someone that you know isn't making the phone, do you think it's valid or? Well, depends what benefits I receive. If they okay. had explained, perhaps that you know this allowed us to make give more battery time. Stock tech. Mm. Do you use wireless headphones or wired headphones? Uh, right wired. now. Wired. Use wired. wired. Ben? Sorry, question. Ben? Wired or wireless headphones right now? Uh, wired. Hugh. Yeah, wired. 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 So I'm I'm on wired as well. So so I mean the real well, question the is, is like if I had those little AirPod things, I'd lose them in about two and a half minutes. <laughs> I, I feel like I lose my keys and they have a lanyard on them. I wonder if Square, uh, what's what's the tile will launch tile for AirPods? Probably, <laughs> very likely. <laughs> I was chatting to a friend today and he was saying the same thing that like they'll just fall out. But surely Apple have like tested this. I'm sure as a device they actually work. You know, Apple's very good at actually executing on hardware solutions. They are actually very good at that. I think it's just the the core premise of having something like that is something that I personally will lose so easily that it has no value, let alone $160 worth of value to me. Yeah, I mean, uh, are there any other interesting applications of a headphone port, you know, apart from the little credit card square payment devices that we that you guys can think of? There have been all kinds of other ones. I know that there has certainly been attempts to use the headphone port for communications on like medical diagnostic tools, particularly aimed at you know, developing countries. That was obviously mostly Android, oh, but yeah. it gave them oh. the easy scale. Yeah. Um, and a connector that, you know, exists on almost every both, you know, computer as well as phone as well as everything else. Another interesting thing actually was when I was uh, in uh, France, I bought a selfie stick and in order to take photos there, it will plug into the into the headphone jack, which was quite neat as opposed to the ones that require Bluetooth and require charging. So, And this is so that when you click the button, the photo gets taken. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, which is smart. That's, that's the you good know. point. And I think that I've seen one other use an Aussie startup. They may not have used the headphone jack, but they used some port in a phone. Could have been the headphone jack to um, measure. Yeah, as you were talking about medical uses, but this was like a uh, a heart rate monitor um, type thing. So yes, it, it does have uses, um, and Apple is taking them away, which is intriguing. But you mentioned uh, Daniel mentioned like the they could have better perhaps explain themselves. Like one of the features of the new iPhone is it's got 256 gigabytes of storage. I think that's one of the first smartphones to have internal flash memory at 256 gigabytes max. Currently, most typical f- smartphones are at 128. Yeah. Uh, and there's a there is a scaling problem with flash at the moment, and like you know technologies like RAM and whatever are being looked at to try and you know fit a terabyte onto a smartphone. But presume yeah, flash takes up space. And, you know, if you're taking out that little 
bit of space where the headphone jack had to go in, you could make more space for flash, and that's probably why they have 256 gigabytes of storage now. Yeah, but I think so, it's also an interesting question. In If you remember before the iPhone came out, everyone was all about miniaturization. I remember that as a nerd when I was probably in about year 11, um, there, you know, I had a phone and I was, it was such a nerd that I was like, let me go and try and find the smallest phone I could possibly f- buy. Because at that point, that was what it was all about. That was the whole thing behind flip phones is all of a sudden your phone's half the size and you can flip it open and everything else. And then all of a sudden the iPhone launched and that was when we suddenly shifted away from these tiny phones into being phone, bigger phones and then there was the galaxies and everything else that then now we have giant you know, plus phones. And so I think it's this weird shift for me in like hardware size. So I sort of go is this a sign that we're moving back towards trying to make everything small or is this just that thin has now become, you know, the latest design trend, whether it's a MacBook or a phone? From my perspective, it's all about screen, screen space because, I mean, you want to be comfortable when whatever you're looking at and whatever you're doing. So I lecture a class here about technology ventures in at Sydney Uni and the question we asked yesterday was, what will take away Apple's dominance in the smartphone market? So they have they have massive dominance in that it's a really it's a very heavily engaged. Not in the US, in Australia, sure. Globally, globally. Like I mean, we're talking about when you say dominance, what do you mean? Like apps? Um, Not just yeah. So we're not just volume shipped because obviously Android is on more volume, but in terms of money made and impact and quality of experience, they're dominate, right? Apple, the Android, their Android platform has no chance in, in the same consistent but Android is winning overall, globally. Yeah, okay, maybe if you say in volume, but I'm talking as a smartphone um, platform, it still dominates. And in whether and Google, Android's one. I mean, like, Apple's if you look two. at developers, like, who are they going to develop their app for correct, first? Correct, correct. Yeah, so sure. it dominates in that regard. So in regards of users, experience, uh, money made for businesses mm. and developers, it dominates ROI. in that Yeah, it dominates yeah. in that regard. Uh, Dan? Just to jump in there, from a developer's perspective, that's also shifting. Developing for iOS now is becoming... I mean, they actually fixed it up a little with the app review time going down to one day, but beforehand... Um, often, well, f- for us particular, we'd make both apps at the, kind of the same time, and then whichever one went first got published. Sure, and that would be Android. But I, I agree. But I agree. I, but, but, but I guess I, what I'm trying to say is their dominance is shrinking, right? Very fast. So, so I guess if you would have, if you would have asked the question, what is, what will actually take away their smartphone dominance? And to me. Um, uh, the answer, the answer for me is is virtual reality potentially. Mm. I mean, that could very quickly take it away if you get. Um, Do you think? I'm not sure that's the next big category shift. Well, I mean, so then I guess the question for you, the other one is wearables, right? And aka Apple Watch, um, that could potentially take it away. Oh, God, um, Apple Watch. I tried Apple Watch for a while. I just could not. <laughs> no, no. So okay. So what do you useful. guys think? Uh, to me, I think VR will take away their dust spot. I think dominance. virtual reality is going to take off. So what do you guys uh, think? What do you I think, think it's going to take off? But I think it's it's it requires too much. Uh, attention. What do you mean attention? Well, so if you think about it, when you're using VR, you you pretty much have to like use exclusively VR. Whereas at the moment, there's such a strong shift away from single use, like from single focus stuff. So that's why you know television has no longer become the thing that in the you know 70s or 80s, you know everyone sat down and watched the television. You now sit down and watch the television and use your iPad and everything else. Okay, so so what do you think will take away Apple's dominance from uh, uh, smartphones? I'm not sure that we're going to see a situation where Apple's. I think it will be. What is well, something? Well, well, but I think it's going to be the, the thing that is not a phone, and I, I think that VR is kind of like still an iteration on top. You know, as far as what we're talking about here, if I understand correctly, VR is still an iteration on the concept of a phone. 
it's not until the fact that we start looking at things like strange implantables and stuff like that that where you'll no longer need to carry around this box in your pocket that yeah. I think we're really going to see a shifting in your pocket. Yes, yes. So, so <laughs> uh, virtual reality, um, you know, just to clarify earlier, I think that it'll take off in um, gaming, but yes. you'll be in your lounge room exactly. and you'll... You'll also be tethered to the the box because the latency that you need you need you need to um, you can't do it over wireless. It's just pretty much impossible. Um, otherwise, you have, you could put a smartphone in a box and like like Google has with the cardboard uh, and put it up on a smartphone on your on your face. But um, yeah, I think what will take Apple's dominance away is well, people buy a smartphone nowadays. I think for the apps and the design of the phone. Like, and I was, again, changed to a friend just recently and like, oh, download this app. Oh, it's only available on, on iPhone. So, like, people are not going to move to uh, Android. I think I think it's the apps that locks people in uh, and keeps them. I don't think yeah, they're so going to have their dominance taken away anytime soon. Okay, that's then that's a fair point. Um, but if we talk about some of the apps that might lock them in further, uh, we've got HealthKit, right? And I think that's a good segue to the, to the next section. So, so Ben, um, you We this? have another special guest uh, who we introduced earlier, Giselle Brand. Uh, Hello, welcome. Giselle. Hello. Tell us a bit about uh, what uh, you're doing. This is for a little bit of context. Giselle is uh, one of the current Incubate startups, actually. So she's in, she's in the middle of the program. So, <laughs> so, you know, so, yeah, so plug away. So, yeah, so Giselle, tell us about what you do. Okay, Health Copilot is a personalized health and wellness coach, and we're building a virtual coach to help individuals struggling with weight management. When did you come up with the idea? When did you start? Maybe a little bit about my background. I'm a clinical dietitian, and I've helped over 2,000 people to lose weight. And I found that there are common problems with these individuals are going on their weight loss journey. So then uh, when trackers became available, um, the idea that we could utilize artificial intelligence or machine learning to help individuals who are struggling with this problem uh, came up, and that's how Health Copilot was born. So I'm kind of going on a weight loss journey myself at the moment, or trying and going to the gym, and like it was such a struggle to begin with. It's always like, oh, I want a burger, and then I go so, get a burger. So, yeah, so <laughs> how do you do? You like bug me? Do you nag me? Like, no. Do you like use geolocation and be like, no, you're in your new grill. Don't stay away. Like how how does your startup work? Tell us a bit about the startup. Okay. So I, guess, I guess the main the main the, the problem. Tell them the problem though. So which mm. is why do people not? I mean, if weight loss is so like easy and all these programs work, why do people lose weight? That's because every individual is different, and you have to find your own personal journey. And machine learning is allowing this personalized journey to take place by delivering personalized health Wait, solutions. So you're telling me I yeah. can't just sign up to these one-stop weight loss programs for 60 bucks a month and I won't lose weight? Scandalous. This, sounds, that like, that yeah. this sounds like like an infomercial that Scandalous. you hear like on morning, morning television days. <laughs> no, because it, I, I think it's really interesting, right? Because I, I think it, it sounds obvious, right? Yes, of course, we need personalized medicine. But in reality, if, if you look at uh, any health fitness, personalized health, personalized yeah. medicine, personalized health, but in reality, you look at anything that's on offer in the market today, nothing's it's personalized. It's one size fits all. Type. It's all one size fits all. And it's kind of like, it's just like, oh, of course we need personalized health. Mm. And, 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 so, and the Fitbit trackers, right, they all claim to have this, but, but mm. I, I, anyway, oh, I don't know if they claim, but I think, what, see, I think what, that I would say that the, the fitness trackers have tailoring down pat. Mm. What, what do you they mean do. by tailoring? How do you mean I, by tailoring down pat? So I mean in the sense of like, when you look at the way that a Fitbit actually operates as a, as a game mechanic, 
it's very good at being able to tailor its outputs in the sense of the you know the notifications that it provides like the problem is is they're low fidelity so it can only really give you a notification saying do more running you know walk more steps it can't really give you a something that's much more you know obviously customized to who you are but it knows when to send you something to say walk more steps and it, and it actually is quite good at working out what the right levers to push might be right so i think that's the very first step we've seen is the fitbit trackers going oh you haven't walked enough steps so walk walking more steps but i guess there's probably there's other steps to this uh, there's other iterations there's, there's slightly different levels um hmm. i don't know so what do, what do you guys what are you guys so trying to do what, what we're what proposing are is something quite different in that we can apply machine learning to analyze health data like your heart rate, weight, percentage body fat, sleep, physical activity, and use this data to predict a person's weight. And are we getting this data nowadays? We're getting it from these health trackers like the Fitbit, the Garmin, and the Wi-Fi so, scale. So, I mean, is this, is, and is this, I mean, my guess is this is fairly recent advent that we now have all this health data. Precisely. What are you guys integrating with right now? We are with Fitbit and Garmin at the moment, and definitely right, but uh, only the Fitbit trackers, right? Yes. So only only the physical trackers. So yes. so I guess if we're talking about the sort of uh, the second topic we we got here is like a rise of health platforms. Where 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 do you as a startup see this heading? Well, I see this heading uh, in the direction of uh, digital medicine. Mm. Uh, the application is in delivery of more and more accurate. Uh, predictive tools Personal, I mean, or personalized medicine a lot of people right. Are right. right. wrong diagnosis I mean there's a there's a cool startup in Melbourne um, and um, they're tailoring antidepressants um, using your genome so they look at your I guess your DNA and so the pro- big problem at the moment is um, if you are, if you're diagnosed with depression and you uh, go to a doctor they there's a lot of drugs that you can try and uh, you just have to keep trial and error. Like you have to keep trying a drug. If you feel shit, like there's nothing you can do about it. Like you've got to, you've got to wait the the course, see if you feel better. No, try get another one. Yes, so they and look. They suffer a lot in the process. So many people suffer, and they just don't stay on the course, and then they just don't get the drug they need. And so yeah, they're looking at taking a saliva swab, and then looking at the genome, and then matching it, tailoring the depressant. Um, to you so that you don't have to go through that arduous up to two year process of trying to find the right drug. Well, I mean, it's funny you mentioned genomes because we actually got a genome sequencing startup in our current batch uh, (laughs) right now. (laughs) Going back to your startup, can you tell us, like, how do you collect the data about the user to tailor the the course for them? Do they have to input it themselves? Do they have to say, I'm... Okay, it's very simple. All they have to do is to go online and connect with us. And then we'll get all their data. Okay. And connect with you, as in, like, you, by their Facebook? Like, how do you get their, their weight or their current weight or okay. their height? Or... So if they're with my fitness pal, they're with um, uh, Garmin or Fitbit, all they have to do is to click on the Connect Your Tracker button. Right. And they'll be connected and we can have access to all their data. Interesting. And then how progressed are you with the, the algorithm and the AI? Like... Have you got a working prototype and does it, has you proven it? Have you, uh, yet? Yep, we've got the prototype and we know it works. It can predict a person's weight. I've, I've got a question for Hugh. You're, you've got some pretty strong opinions about the rise of these health platforms. 
What do you see? What do you see as a negative side? I mean, because like, for example, Apple was saying they'll be requesting your medical data soon as well on your behalf from 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 potential GPs or hospitals or something. I mean, what what are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So the first thing is, I think that the like there's a there's a big potential for rubbish, um, and there already is a lot of garbage out there. Whether it's about you know dieting apps or whatever it might be, and you know Apple's already announced that they're going to try and take a slightly harder or hardline, harder line stance um, on a lot of these rubbish apps. I mean, I think that the, the big challenge is really like to what degree can you replace, um, I guess what you would call it, you know, the, the standard clinical relationship, you know, and when we look at the, um, at least in Australia, and I'm talking Australia here, um, in Australia, you know, telehealth hasn't really taken off other than maybe, you know, specialists, um, telehealth, uh, you know, telepresencing into regional areas, for example, but you know, when you're in the city, you know you don't, uh, you know, you don't do a video consult to go and see your GP. Um, mm. And I'm not sure that that's really necessarily going to change because we do have quite a large health workforce here. And you know, while there are inefficiencies in the system around, you know, waiting for you know your appointment and things like that, ultimately a, a big part of that health relationship with your in, in the healthcare sense, so in the primary mm. practitioner sense, um, does involve a lot of face-to-face contact. And I'm not sure that we're going to see a big portion of the community want to give that up. Some sure, but others not. I think we're going to see, uh, 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 God, I hate to use this word, a lot of disruption in the health space. Disruption. Um, <laughs> bingo, uh, if you're playing uh, at home. Just a quick story. Um, when I fell, I broke my arm, fell off my bicycle oh, no. um, three, four years ago. Oh. Um, and I went to the hospital and uh, I had to wait like to the end of the day because it was like over an Easter weekend everyone was like dying from car crashes and I was like low priority and I had a half cast on half a plaster cast and um, at the end like the doctor took a picture of the x-ray and sent it to the surgeon via a text message yes very good health security there oh so the uh, privacy act breach that clearly occurred so basically, he was trying to be agile. Bingo! Agile. Uh, <laughs> because the bureaucracy uh, was uh, failing him in terms of how he could distribute the, the x-ray. And the reason he wanted to get... Because he can't go into the surgery. Like, he has to put on all well, the... He has to clean his hands. Effort. effort, right? And it's like on the other side of the bloody hospital. But then um, at the same time, we have too many medical graduates and not necessarily enough jobs. So that means that there is going to be a shift as well in the way that that actual sector has to do... Uh, I guess resource. You're, the world here, right? You're a med school dropout. I know. So there you go. I've made, I think... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, as, as someone, as a student, told me the other day, we need more medical entrepreneurs. <laughs> well, uh... just to. <laughs> I, I, I sense some trepidation there. <laughs> just to um, go back to the story, um, so they sent, and the reason they did that was because, yeah, obviously the guy was like saving lives and busy and just, you know, right. didn't want to interrupt him. So sent the text message. He gets a buzz in his pocket, presumably. Checks it, goes, you know, basically the question is presumably, hey, mate, um, you know, I know you're saving lives and stuff. Uh, I've got a broken arm. You know, all these junior doctors that love to write these lengthy text messages to their consultants. <laughs> um, do you like? What do you think? Have a look. Do you reckon you can work on that today? And uh, he texted back, "No." Uh, and uh, this is not word for word, but the reason I know it was no was because I was sent home and I had to go to the chemist get painkillers and with my half cast on and go back the next day, wait a whole day, be told again I couldn't go into the hospital, and then the next day I got operated on. 
That was hard. The point. The point being lack of security, and yeah. then also uh, the doctors are using WhatsApp. They're using oh, yeah. WhatsApp. Yeah, yeah. And that wasn't even encrypted no. until and pl- like t- SMS is not. Yeah, SMS is um, no, right. I, I, I can I can I can sit in one place and pick up SMSs and unencrypt them pretty quickly. And so there's, a, there's another startup. I won't mention their name, but they're in Melbourne and they're working on digitizing the the health space. So the checkboards at the yeah. end of the beds, so they're yeah. digitizing that, and they're also digitizing doctor to doctor communication to solve that problem. Yeah, they're probably ten or twenty of them in Australia now. Oh, cool. This keeping, keeping ones here close, right, close to the ground. Right for disruption. I, I mean, the other thing is, you know, I mean, if we talk about the rise of health platforms and we want to be agile. Bingo. <laughs> um, and if we're going to be agile, right, we, 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 want, we, want, we want people to move at some reasonable speed. And then there's a whole question of how do you move with reasonable oh, speed you without, this. without necessarily impacting on health results, right? And this week, in the last two weeks, we've had a whole bunch of new articles about Theranos in the US, right? Darling startup story back in the day. And then, you know, there's some questionable results about some of the blood test claims that they made. But on one side, I'm sitting there going, well, they move very, very fast. They're mm. moving super it, fast. Right? It is hard to move fast in this space. You make one claim that might be questionable and all of a sudden you are like the worst person in the entire what, world. What, what I mean by um, you can't, it's very hard to move fast in this industry is because you're talking about changing a doctor's habits and like or a surgeon's habits and they're so ingrained in like this old school way like I'm noticing just chatting to these startups in Melbourne that are, are doing this type of thing they're finding that like first they have to deal with like the state government then they have to deal with like the health department and like yeah. often these are public hospitals and yeah. like then you're dealing with the doctors who work across both private and public and they just are stuck so stuck to their old way the, the challenge here is twofold the first challenge is that the it, it's it's a classic problem of there are big established players the hospital IT departments trust brand very heavily. It's not traditionally a startup-focused area. Trust RBM except for the census. And they, but and, and the other thing is though is that they they have so much trust and everything else, but they're very very happy using legacy technology. All of healthcare IT is probably. 15 years behind, you know, everything Why? else. Why, Hugh? Is it because they think that we're paying millions and millions of dollars and nothing's going to fall but over? It's, it's, for the same, it's for the same reason that banks still run on mainframes and COBOL. It's a trust thing. So there's, there's this big trust element of, like, the system needs to run. And if the system stuffs up, then bad things happen. It's the same as, like, the way that the financial sector frequently operates. Well, at least the core parts of the financial sector operates on, you know, these giant horrible mainframes and they're having all of these problems recruiting people to be able to work on these systems because they're such gigantic legacy problems. Does health need more of a hacker mentality? Uh, maybe. In, in some areas, yes. In other areas, no. I think that's the thing. And, and I think so the challenge is, as you said, James, is there's a, sorry, as Ben said, there's a habit problem here and doctors are very habitual um, and, and clinicians are very habitual. But I think the other challenge is also that um, there's are uh, th- th- there's big money in the health market for some parts of the health system, but there's not a lot of money in other parts. So you're you're actually smarter. And so I know a few of these people that have been trying to build these uh, healthcare messaging type solutions, and and it becomes quite interesting because you actually end up often being better to pivot into other regulated sectors like financial services because they'll actually pay more money. Similar problem in needing an audit trail and blah 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 and all the usual kind of thing, but they actually have. More, they have deeper pockets and shorter sales cycles. So it's it's quite a strange sector to try and really sell anything into that isn't like a core system, like you know your medical record. Giselle, you've been listening to all of this. Um, what do you make of of it? Do you have you heard these types of things before? That change in the industry is hard. I know you're in the nutrition space. Most doctors, to begin with, are not IT savvy, and they're not 
tech savvy and the fee-for-service model is so entrenched, I don't see it changing in a hurry. I think that as we see major changes in, in Medicare and the way that we do, for example, if we move to capitation model where they have in the UK where you know doctors are incentivized to keep people out of hospital, for example, we might see changes. But until that kind of change comes through the system, I'm, I'm not sure that we're really going to see a big change in the way that the day-to-day workflow actually operates. And Giselle, what do you think will cause change? Demand from patients. So we need to go out there, pitchfork in hand, and go to the... I want health code. I don't want my x-rays sent to the surgeon by plain text, text message. I'll give you another antidote, right, which is very interesting, because we're talking about the control. I mean, we could spend another whole episode on the control of data mm. and your personal health. Oh, I was going to say, I'm very against the whole idea of medical... I mean, if you don't know already, listeners, your whether you like it or not, your health data is already within a big d- database in Canberra. And uh, if you link up your personal health identifier, all of a sudden it sprouts back every prescription drug you've ever bought in Australia. Yeah, but to be uh, fair, like when you go and see your GP and they tap and tap into their little GP medical record, that's usually a very poorly protected service sitting in a cupboard at the general practice. These are right. doctors that get hit with ransomware so, and your data gets locked up and can potentially be sent anywhere. I, I ransomware. I, ransomware. <laughs> I actually have had three clinics in the last month, though, actually, that, uh, that, that have been hit with ransomware. Talk about ransomware. I had a I had a blood test, and that recently. is scary. By the way, that is really well, I mean, freaking scary. I had a like, blood test recently, and they said that I've got to pay money to get my results. I'm like, these are my results, and like, no, 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 you got to pay extra money just for us to service you to give you your results. I recently paid like thirty five dollars to get my blood results. Mm. I find um, that. But I wait, did you have criminal. to? Did you not go to a bulk billing? Uh, no, 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 I didn't. No, no, this not, was all, not all pathology tests are necessarily going to get bulk. That's right. Not all yeah. pathology tests are. And this is why I thought that Theranos was really interesting, right? Because they actually give you a dashboard. You're in far more control when you get the blood test results. I think that's, I think that's something that we should definitely should be heading towards. Thank you so much, Giselle, for Thank joining you. us. It was really great having you. Thanks, Giselle. Thanks. Last topic before we move on to our other special guest is... Um, I guess we'll kind of dive into it as part of it. Uh, we're talking about student entrepreneurs, and um, we're in a student hub, startup hub, after all. Yeah, I mean, we've chatted about this before. You you run an incubator program at Sydney Uni. Uh, it is literally in a bunker, uh, and well, in a way, we are protected from a nuclear blast. You are, and uh, <laughs> ish, uh, and uh, there's been a lot of bashing uh, of late of of universities, particularly from Steve Baxter. Uh, he sold his company Pipe Networks for about three hundred and something million dollars. Well, not just Steve. I mean, there's been a lot of a number of comments as well. Co-founders, yeah. Uh, and so there's him, Mark Carnegie, yep. uh, and in the US, Paul Graham of Y Combinator fame. Uh, who's also a VC. And essentially, Paul Graham argued in April that innovation and entrepreneurship has no place in universities. I'm probably verbaling him there a little bit, but he essentially said, like, you hear these unis saying, oh, let's get involved in innovation, let's get involved in entrepreneurship. And often it goes nowhere and ends up being kind of this, um, you know, we want to look cool thing rather than something that is, like, hands-on helping students and so now you obviously are very hands-on so my i mean my my interpretation of that is that you know when when someone like paul graham went to and steve baxter went to university or i mean steve didn't go to university as i as i understand it but regardless of whether he did or didn't you know if you're talking about a a middle-aged white guy who went to university uh that was a very different time for going to university and the fact is um if we go out and survey their students now 
more than 35%, you know, are interested in being a founder within five years of graduating. They actually would like the idea of owning a business that they run. And so for the idea to me that universities should not be supporting this is, is criminal. It's almost like telling the students, you know, oh, we don't care what you want. We're just going to train you up for a job in some big corporate. And, and, and so universities are moving away from this sort of model where a degree will get you job ready, mm. so to speak. The, the, rea- the reality is it's just that oh, the whole job ready concept to my, I completely disagree with as well. But, what, when, yeah. when you look at the numbers, universities are having to bingo, adapt... Uh, is, and is it, wait, is adapt a keyword? <laughs> oh, I think so. Is adapting lean. lean or agile? No, agile. They're not leaning. They're not. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it does not matter. <laughs> Universities are not lean young, institutions. Young companies, you including startups, create. When you look at the figures, young companies, including startups, created nearly all of the 1.6 million net new jobs in Australia from 2003 to 2014. We're talking about net new jobs. So obviously, there's banking and finance and all these other. Net new companies, which includes the standard SME sector of you know cafes and everything else. So we should we should be quite clear. It's not just you know like tech startups. So sure. young young companies. Uh, we're talking when we talk about this, we're talking about net new jobs. So jobs that didn't. My understanding: these are jobs that didn't exist before, that have now existed, and that they're being created by these. I don't. I my understanding of the figures. And I need to look back at them. Is that they don't include the coffee shops of the world. They most definitely do include the coffee shops of the world. They do. Did that figure? It's just companies that have existed for less than two years or something like that. It's it's all companies that have existed for less, less than two years. It's not about size or growth growth pace or anything like that. It's just new companies. Regardless <laughs> of whether it's new companies, whether it's SME jobs or jobs within growth startups, it's still young companies. I, I think that jobs. like, okay, well, we, we probably all agree that the jobs of today are not all going to exist tomorrow. Can we uh, just... We can agree on that, on? I think. Okay. Sure. So once you get past that, you have to think, well, well what is the job of a university? And traditionally, it has been training people up for the jobs of... No, and traditionally, of, it hasn't been that at all. Of, well, it has. We're talking, are we talking sort of, what sort of tradition? In Australian, it, like, in Australian tradition, probably to some degree, I think, yes. Yes, yeah. so it's like, here, get your MBA, here, do your medical degree, here, do this degree, here, comp science degree, uh, like, to fit a job. And when it comes to startups, like, it's kind of, it's been pretty much like, go out, do startup, don't, you don't really need to go to uni to do a startup. But if unis can add value, they should probably be getting involved, is my view, in, in this space. Like, and it should probably be taught to everyone, like entrepreneurship. Yeah, see, I, don't, I don't know if everybody, like, I think part of it as is... As a course. As a course, sure. You know, Not as a bachelor of, like, you know, extra... Um, there is, of course, a, you know, bachelors of entrepreneurship and there are now diplomas of startup and everything else. But but I think it's a, I think it's an interesting question of saying, like, how much of this is something where... You know, and maybe I'm sort of projecting my own experience here, but how much of this is something where had someone gone to university, all of a sudden they're going to do a startup or not? And I think that's, you know, like sort of falling a bit short. Ultimately, you know, if someone wants to start something, then they're going to go and start something. In the same way, like there are people who have the risk appetite to, you know, to do startups, quote unquote. Um, and there are people that don't have that risk appetite and, and that's never really going to change. Um, you know, and you can't change someone's risk appetite. Well, it's very hard to change someone's risk appetite. And so I think that's something where you know, I, I agree. Sorry, can we go? Yeah, I think, but I just I think that that's something where, like, you know, in all of the conversation about how you know startups are the future of, of tomorrow, like I think that's true in in many ways. But I think also it's very difficult to not realize that you know there's actually nothing wrong, or you know there's nothing actually you know otherwise less impressive for someone who decides no, I don't want to have that sort of risk profile. I you know I want to actually have a regular job, whether it's with a bank or with a startup. I disagree. 
I completely it's disagree. You agreed a second ago, and now you disagree. What do you disagree no, with? No, no, no. I, I, I agree that we should. I, I agree. I agree. We should be. We, we should be um, encouraging people to to do startups and be entrepreneurs. Uh, there's there's two things here. There's, what do you disagree with? The 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 first thing that I agree with is yes, we should be encouraging entrepreneurs to be better entrepreneurs, and people think that's a solved problem. And it's not. We uh, we are very very good at um, telling great entrepreneurs to not be entrepreneurs. In fact, I think we are very. We, I think I think it's a massive. Is that problem. an Australia thing or it's a, it's US a global thing. thing? But it's in generally in Australia, particularly, it's very very easy to get distracted by other things here because there are a lot of opportunities, right? And and there's 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 warped incentives for young people to go join big companies in Australia. I think. Uh, the thing I dis- whether a young person wants money or not often. Sure, sure. But the other the thing I disagree with is 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 the idea that um, uh, the risk appetite isn't for everyone. Um, I totally disagree with that. I think everyone has the ability to be a fantastic entrepreneur. It's about understanding what they're passionate about. It's understanding what where they want to create value. But there's a between ability and desire. I agree. Risk appetite. Like I, I think I think the default is actually everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. But and not everyone actually, can be because of their financial situation. No, 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 no. I think the default is everyone wants to be an entrepreneur, and I think what we're being fed is completely wrong. Which is, oh, entrepreneurship's for two percent of the population. No, but surely, population. no, surely. I think it's a complete BS. I think no. you can argue what percentage it is, and that's a separate problem. I think it's a hundred percent of the population there, want to be entrepreneurs. Surely, okay, fine. No, I think hundred percent. I think that's very wrong. No, everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Everyone wants to be bloody entrepreneur. Everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. But not everyone can be an entrepreneur. That's different. Then the question becomes, well, are we encouraging people to do things they don't want to do? But that's the degree of, for example, from my point of view, like how much how much are we de-risking? And to what degree do you need to de-risk? And to what degree when you do end up de-risking things, do you end up just creating... Effectively, like slush funds for venture money. Yeah. Sure, and then then there goes the other interesting question, which is, you know, um, to be an entrepreneur thirty years ago was very different to what it is today, right? Because there's much more support and 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 all sorts of other things, and and I think some people's definitions of of what it is to be an entrepreneur is really dogged in a very old school mentality like i um and it's it's kind of this um it's a very it's it's what i call entrepreneur diversity it's the idea that there are diverse um yeah oh that diversity is good it is a diverse types of entrepreneurs and it's not the white guy from x top percentage university or dropout white guy you know it's 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 the idea that everyone can be um and not necessarily will build a billion dollar business but absolutely can build um a business that will um, but it depends on their risk appetite which i don't understand why you disagree with i think that the Um, risk appetite is key there's a good question of how can we encourage people to be more like risk taking and you know and that's the thing is often when someone's at university for example is often when they're young not always but often when they're young and usually when people are younger they have a higher risk appetite you know and we know that because they don't have kids and they don't have a mortgage and everything else exactly and and that's and how can we encourage them like james has a solution he has an he gives them a solution (laughs) some cash uh, no, no, no! It's not just cash. It's, in fact, cash is the least ranked thing. When we went, when we, when we but surely this, that's a, a big part of why people uh, not at all, not like, at all, would need something like not yours. at all. When we mentorship, rank, yes, I get it. Yes, the we, network. When we when we do the surveys, cash does not rank high. Just to jump in here, because I, I went through the incubate program last time, and I can see why people would want to go and so someone like why Combinator. That's probably a lot of the cash is a big part there. But with the incubate program, I definitely think it's more about providing students with the opportunity to go down that path. It's not necessarily about 
Um, you couldn't get that opportunity yourself. Yeah. So how many how many times were you provided the opportunity no, before incubate? Not not the same kind of opportunity. See, I've always sure. had an interest in this stuff. I've always been I've been developing something since a young age. But the stuff that incubate opened up for me in terms of the people I've met, the people I've spoken to, the inspiration I've received, the contacts I've developed, and that all that I think has changed it for me. Just being um, someone who code stuff like in a spare time make stuff mm-hmm. to actually being more engaged with what I'm doing and realizing that this is a viable uh, option for me to pursue down the track and I think I could, seeing so many people in it makes me realize that it, it isn't just the 1% it is actually a, something possible for a lot of people to do and also the support that you get from all the people around, around how much, how, much you, how important is the moral support like I know a lot of moral support people, you mean social support yeah social and, and moral uh, yeah more social how how important is that? Um, because I, you know a lot of people get depressed, like as startup founders, and like it could be a lonely journey. But if you've got a lot, a lot of people in the same room, it must be encouraging. Um, sh- yes, I guess I think that's probably quite valuable. But I think to me, more so the fact that the individuals that you get to meet and seeing how they've approached things, I think that's more the more valuable things. Like learning from all these different people mm-hmm. who've experienced similar problems to you and the ways they've gone about doing it. Yeah. Because and, not, and not having to learn their... Like, they teach you their fail lessons. Like, we failed, don't do this. Yeah. And then you don't have to fail the and way so, that they fail. Yeah, and so you can become much better at what you're doing a lot faster. We should probably move on to interviewing you about what you're up to. Yes, tell us what you actually do. What do I do? Um, so I'm currently studying uh, Bachelor of Computer Science here at Sydney Uni. Um, I've been coding stuff, things, since I was quite young. I think probably around the age of seven, I got into you know making things here and there. Made my first um, my first income from like putting together a forum and um, putting some Google Google ads on it. Made some scripts for different botting things, and so just kind of ventured on from there. Then last year, I started university, and I was speaking to one of my friends about how I enjoyed uh, programming, developing. He thought that was quite interesting because he. He is quite. He was quite interested in making stuff, but he doesn't have the skill to do it. And so we got talking, and then we decided to make an application to uh, that lets you play music in the background because that that was a big pain point for both of us. So we decided, why not? Let's make this. Uh, so we made it in a few days, put it on the Play Store, and then uh, when I was on holiday during my mid semester break, we realized we got fifty thousand users after not checking back on it for maybe a month. <laughs> so then I was on a ferry going from Athens to um, one of the islands, um, Paros, and on that ferry of about four hours, I quickly added ads and uh, in-app purchases and updated the UI. So you're, 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 there, you're there on your ferry, hacking away, coding away, <laughs> yeah, um, updating your app, and then yeah, yeah. whilst whilst my uh, my friend and my girlfriend were both na- taking a nap, I was just busy tapping away on my keyboard and we put that out and then soon after that we hit maybe 200,000 users and then within nine months of launching we were over 1 million users Oof. with approximately 200 monthly active users uh, and at any one time between 200 to 400 concurrent active users. <laughs> so, I mean, that was a really big eye-opener for us because we went from having a conversation to making something and that's, mm. bas- that's why I develop is I love actualizing an idea. Mm. But then I realized, wow, this is actual, this is, it's a real opportunity for us and then uh, we so we tried to monetize that and we built started building a um, a steady income for two university students so then we just kind of said to ourselves we should keep trying to do stuff like this like why why not and then we looked at incubate we got accepted into here Um, with what idea oh we wanted to 
but it's shifted a lot, but initially we wanted to build a tool for university students to be able to connect with one another easier because we thought we could maybe tackle um, dropout rates and make it easier for students who are coming from high school to be in a more familiar environment. Then we changed into actual... It was, it was the classic um, find my friends app idea. So you had a product market fit problem? Uh, yeah, well, so we realized early on that that's not, we can't, we won't it's be able to monetize that. Yeah. And students don't necessarily need or want that. So then we actually ventured if, if into... You're, if you're a student listening to this and you're about to pitch a Find My Friends app, students don't want it. Just, just, that's my pro tip. I think it's called, <laughs> it's called Facebook. Is that, is that it? No, no, no students want to connect or with Snapchat. themselves. They don't want to find friends. They're happy to connect with them. And unfortunately, Facebook bet you to the game on that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Daniel, keep going. Well, yeah, so we just, we basically tried to just make, uh, make it easier for you to know what your friends are at and where they are instead mm. of having to send screenshots around but then we realized a ske- the scheduling problem is a huge problem and it exists everywhere and there's no good solution for it yet and then so what happened after so yeah so we decided to make a bot essentially which would, could be accessible through any platform and for example teams primarily targeted at uh, office teams to only require one person to sign up as yep. soon as they signed up or emailed us or messaged us yep. on, via the bot it would uh, it would take their calendar data by through OAuth and then that will pull their team's calendar data and then from then on when you send an email to your team being like we need to meet next week yeah. it would automatically respond with right. the most uh, the most convenient time for everyone in the team yeah cool mm. if you're listening to this and that's something you would use please do tweet at us because I'm, I'm, I'm still intrigued and what was the name of that? Yeah. we called it Meet Smart okay similar to The Best Day uh, no, different, different, different. The best day was another startup that came through Incubate in class one. Same goal, which is to make meeting um, groups of people together Some easier. Frictionless. Maybe. Frictionless, and it's still it's still an unsolved problem, and mm. it still wastes lots of hours for big teams. So then what happened? You guys moved on to, to another app, right? So my co-founder kept kind of trying to work at it, but in the meantime, I was trying to get back onto our first app try get some stuff going there and build it up a little. Our audio pocket. Um, and then... A couple, a month or so ago now, Pokemon Go came out, as we all know, yeah. and then we quickly tried to find something to do with that, so we made a messenger bot for people to be able to chat on a national and regional level with others, which saw some success, but then we kind of saw that there was a lot of potential here, and so we decided to make another app that would show you where the location of Pokemon are, and we kind of built that out in an afternoon, and when we woke up the next day, we had about 200,000 users using it. Oh my god. Did you put any effort into making an impact, and did you think it would make it? Probably no to all those. So we, we kind of just like experimenting and prototyping things generally just for our own kind of desire. I guess we want to make something and just see what happens. And so we made it with no expectation that it would get as big as it did or that it would get the attention it did. But the next day when we saw the numbers, we were like, wow. Like, because we already had a successful app. We had experience. Well, we thought we had a really successful app, but then this was just something on a completely different scale. How shit was the MVP? Terrible. Uh, It was a map with a big button at the bottom which said like show Pokemon or something Mm. and so you could zoom in on the map and you click the button and it'll try load Pokemon in that area but like the the UI was horrendous Um, yeah it was were you proud of the MVP? No, I don't think you ever are proud of an MVP. <laughs> I was proud of the engagement that we were getting. I was proud of the, the fact that we were helping users. Mm. Because, I mean, there was, like... Well, it was usable. Yeah. It functioned. It worked, and so, and it got the... People could find their Pokemon. Yeah. Then what happened? Well, we woke up, we looked at analytics, and I just remember I was so shocked, and I was just like... What uh, did you do? What, what was your reaction? Like, did you, did you go to sleep... Put it out. Did you tweet it or something? Mm, I don't even know if we tweeted it because I was like, I put it. I usually like, you know, uh, I think it actually got released. 
I, I don't think you think I was awake for the because we went through the review process, had to yeah. get accepted, it got released and automatically, and so I don't think I was even aware of it being released at the time. So when I woke up, um, we hadn't really done any advertising or marketing yet because we were the only ones doing it and people were searching. You had done none. So You did no, no marketing. No marketing, no marketing yes. at that stage. Uh, and people were searching for it so much. Hmm. Um, How many users are it at now? No, we're getting to that. Oh, we're okay. going, we're getting... I'm jumping the gun. So, so we definitely <laughs> didn't accept. So I wake up and we look at the numbers and I just, I think I, I told, so I told my girlfriend, she was quite shocked as well. Then I called up my, um, my co-founder and we we both couldn't believe it so we're like okay let's get in gear we've obviously got you know a hidden a hit on our hands let's fix the ui let's make this a better experience for people and let's get it out there so we did we probably spent the next week or so barely sleeping did we, you have university uh it, no so what, university, what is university when you have week. things to build <laughs> That's right. University started the second week, but we've already had a year and a half experience of basically not turning up to anything and working our own stuff. So that wasn't that wasn't our biggest concern. I think you can call yourself an entrepreneur. Yeah, that's um, that's an entrepreneur mentality. But anyway, so you were lucky in that. Like, what would you have done had like uni have been on? Like, would you have, you would have dropped it? Like, you would have just. I I'll just. I'll, I, to be honest, I'm I'm not a very dedicated student. I kind of do. I'm, I, I I mean, I get good marks in the end, but I kind of leave everything to the last minute and study so every student ever so i don't think it changed my i would have, wouldn't have changed anything i just probably would have turned up to even less mm. things so instead of turning up to like a few classes i would have gone yeah. to none so you, you you doubled down bingo uh <laughs> and you got to work yeah so we got together um into the same room we quickly planned out what we wanted to do what we saw happening and then i was basically trying to uh build a better UI first up, and then second of all, improve performance. Um, and not to mention that we were building for Android and iOS at the same time. We we're using React Native. So I was building for two platforms at the same time. Not only did we have a huge number of users coming in, it, it was definitely uh, it was definitely quite hectic. And then we realized we needed a good support method, mechanism because our app wasn't very user-friendly. So in order to combat that and to retain users, we needed to have a good support mechanism. So we decided let's go off Twitter. That's a simple uh, way, an efficient way to communicate with people. We put up a pop-up on our um, on our app that whenever it didn't work properly, it would say to them, go to Twitter for support or ask any help. And I think in the first few days, we quickly hit 10K followers and <laughs> people were constantly tweeting at us. And my friend at one stage, I think he stayed up nearly two days without sleeping, just responding to people. <laughs> uh, the, on our, on the Twitter notifications, things would come in so quickly that mm. we wouldn't have time to even see or read the message before the new notifications came in. That's yeah. how much of a uh, how much activity we're doing. But we really wanted to make sure people had a good experience because at the end of the day, we build stuff because we want people to benefit from it. We want them to have a really good experience. And so he would respond to them in their native language because uh, he 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 knows um, every single one of them. No, but he, he's Google Translate, but he knows a couple. So and he's Google Translate for the rest, and it worked. Sufficiently. How are you even triaging? Like if they're all just coming. In, like, were you using a system to respond? It, the system's called uh, type as fast as you can and don't miss any tweets. <laughs> the good That's system. The system that we use. <laughs> concierge. Um, I like to call it concierge. Concierge. <laughs> people at the problem. Like, we, hadn't, we didn't have enough time to stop at any point. Like, it was literally, we go to sleep for like a couple of hours, wake up, continue through the next job, and support was integral. Like, one of the reasons we did so well and we got so many users was due to that support. And kept them on. You mean retain? Yeah. Mm. So, so you offered really good support. Support is really, really, really important when something doesn't work. I've learned this a couple of times. Like, my, my, <laughs> my co-founder, he did a little quick presentation to a group of people explaining what we did, and he put up this PowerPoint, this slide, which said, you have got to have timing, you got to have a good idea, blah, blah. And then he was like, I literally just downloaded this off some of like some blog online that's obvious you need to have that but what really 
makes things different is the experience you offer to the consumer and like how you interact with them and the mm. fact that he made every single one of them feel mm. like they were being heard and that we mm. were responding to them created so much goodwill for us mm. that just made people share it with other people and really like us as soon as yeah the connection is really important like if you don't have it like I guess it kind of so how many uses do you have now? No, wait, wait, wait. So oh, God. We, don't, we, we need a, a bit of a, a build-up here. So um, you, then did you start, like, marketing it? Or were you? what was the day-on-day growth? So, so after the 200K came in, my uh, co-founder wanted his jobs. So I do all the development. He does everything else. Support, advertising, growth hacking, whatnot. And he got creative. Growth hacking, bingo. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, we both just like the term, but it's, it's appropriate, I suppose. So he's quite good at that. Um, well, the results speak for themselves. Two apps with over over quite a few users. Um, but basically, he used lots of different uh, marketing channels, all free, by the way. We spent no money on advertising to get users, Reddit, mm-hmm. Facebook groups, and whatnot. Just just got it out there, and that got a ton of people in because they, they, the product was really wanted. Like at the end of the day, they really wanted what we offered. So we spent no marketing money, but he did post anywhere and everywhere mm. to get the word out. Now, James, you can ask. Ah, how many users now? After all this, so across iOS and Android, I think in total we have surpassed 4.5 million. I haven't looked 4. at the latest. 4.5 million. <laughs> I haven't looked at the latest data just That's because <laughs> things have gotten very busy. But, so, yeah. Daniel, how much money have you spent on marketing? We spent no money. Zero dollars. Are you looking... Now, this is a free app. Mic drop. Yeah. Um, and it's on iOS only. It was on Android too, but that then we took okay. it down because Play Store had some issues with apps like us. Okay. It's on iOS. You... A business model. You don't... Uh, are you pursuing a business model? See, well, like, with our You're previous... You're 4.5 million users <laughs> and you've got a free app. What are you going to do? Like, similar with the last app, we make things because we want people... We think people need this product and so we're like, why not make it for them? And then only after do we realize, you know what, we could have people actually might want to pay for this. Do you regret not charging from the start? Uh, not really, because it wasn't quite ready for, to to um, to charge. Like, for example, the only reason we actually added in uh, any kind of monetization was because we were getting so many tweets and messages mm. asking us for people to donate money and mm. be like, how can I give you money? What money can you... Like, do you have any donation platforms? And initially our answer was mm. like, no, we're just doing this because mm. um, we enjoy it. But then from all that flood of messages we realized that you know people actually do want to support this mm. um why not give them a way to support it so we put in a in-app purchase and basically just said uh, and we put in opt-in adverts so everything was free and um no adverts would come up but we added an option for and we said a little message look if you want to support us you can either buy mm. premium uh in-app purchase or you can uh, enable adverts and whichever one you choose and in return we gave them like filters um larger radius and there was a third option there which is don't do anything and not support us and not pay us and yeah. just everything's good um hugh yes so i, I think it's it's well worth saying i think it, you know you've, you've done a very impressive job um and certainly you know seeing those kind of growth numbers you you definitely don't see a lot of australian startups necessarily getting that um particularly at such a frequent pace I guess um, just you know, sort of before uh, we start wrapping up, it's it's been quite a long podcast. I wanted to briefly ask you. So you were talking about how you you know you, you said that you sort of started doing some coding slash development slash whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, back when you were sort of seven seven ish. You know, a, clearly a very young person. Um, and I guess I was curious about whether or not what you think about a lot of this conversation that's that's been occurring about whether or not we should be sort of explicitly teaching coding at schools. Um. 
See, I, I'm quite double-minded about that because at the same time, I think it's an invaluable skill. Whatever job you or career you pursue, coding will come in handy regardless of what you do. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it's something that unless you really like are interested in it, that you can be sat down at school and taught. Because well, we, we uh, sat down and like tried to be taught Japanese or... Or, or Italian, like usually that is something, and, and who's let ever going to use an, that let unless they go to Let him answer, Benjamin. Anyway, go back. So, so for that reason, I don't see it as a thing that should be compulsory. Um, I do think it should be uh, promoted, definitely, at a, particularly at a young age, because it's probably easiest, because the thing with coding is you just need time. Like, it's something that takes a while for you to build up those skills, and the earlier you start, the easier it is. So I think we should definitely promote that kind of, um, that kind of area, but I don't necessarily think we should make it compulsory and going back to the university thing I don't necessarily know whether it's the university's job to kind of quote-unquote teach entrepreneurship or innovation I think universities personally I think a university's job is to teach you the skills that you want to learn for example if you're going to computer science you're expecting that you'd deal quite well with uh, solving complex problems efficiently and and I think that's what they should really focus on Mm but also be able to give you the kind of opportunities that the Incubate program does, which is, look, if you're interested in it, mm. jump in. So, yeah, providing the option there, because a lot of universities don't have that option, um, but they are starting to, to do it. And um, but, but, yes. but I think as a degree, primarily, it should be about mm. teaching you the skills that you want to develop and learn. Yeah. We should wrap this up. It has been a long podcast. Um, thank you, James. Thank you. Thank you, Hugh. Thank you, Ben. And thank you, Daniel. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks for having me. Just all hope this body saves.